From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life, and I'm John Shuck. Okay, here's a story from seminary days. When I was in seminary, uh, I, one of the first things that confronted me was the variety of Jesuses, a plethora of Jesuses, a smorgasbord of Jesuses, a whole slew of Jesuses. Uh, there, there was the, the Gospel of Mark's Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew's Jesus, the Gospel of John's Jesus, the Gospel of Luke's Jesus, and they were all different really. There's uh, the Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus of Paul, uh, Revelation's Jesus. Uh, there was the Q's Jesus, the Gospel of Thomas Jesus, the Gospel of Peter's Jesus, all kinds of Gospels that, that didn't even make it uh, into the Bible, the, the kind of the, they didn't make the cut. Uh, but they had views of Jesus that were quite a bit different. And then as the tradition developed, uh, new Jesuses came on, the Jesus of, uh, you know, the died for your sins, and, and suddenly you had the Jesus of the Nicene Creed, and then uh, the Jesus of the Middle Ages, and, and finally you get to fundamentalism Jesus. And, and man, which Jesus? Will the real Jesus please stand up? Who's the real guy? Well, that's a, a challenge. We may never get to the real guy, but scholars are peeling away layers of the Jesus tradition to find out what might be some of the earlier visions and to realize that there were a variety of Jesuses near the very beginning. And that's kind of exciting, actually, to recognize that there are all kinds of different views and not one view has the corner on the truth. Today we are introduced to two early versions of Jesus. Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas and Jesus in Q. My guest is Professor Stephen Patterson. He is a member of the Jesus Seminar and the head of the Christian Origins Project of the Jesus Seminar. And he's also the George Atkinson Professor of Religious and Ethical Studies at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. And he's with me to talk about his new book, The Lost Way. How Two Forgotten Gospels Are Rewriting the Story of Christian Origins. He's on the phone with me from Salem. Welcome, Professor Patterson, to Religion for Life. Uh, thank you, John. Thanks. Uh, tell me about this book, uh, The Lost Way. Uh, how did it come to be? What are you setting out to do with this book? Well, um, this book is, I guess, as it says, the story of two forgotten gospels. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas and the mysterious lost Gospel Q. Uh, it's the story of how they were found, and also the story of the, the way they're making a difference in the way biblical scholars reconstruct the origins of Christianity. Well, let's talk a little bit about each one. Uh, first, Q. Now, now, Q really isn't a text, right? It's a it's a theory or a reconstruction of of a text. Uh, tell us a little bit how what what Q is. Well, Q is the source that, you, that was used by the, the authors of Matthew and Luke when they were composing their Gospels. It was discovered um, in the 18th century, really, when scholars first began to read very, very carefully um, the four biblical Gospels and noticing what you would notice if we, you know, we read them carefully today, that they share a common plot line and that they have many, many stories and sayings and parables in common, oftentimes a green verbatim. And so scholars noticed that um, the pattern of their relationship, the pattern of those agreements that you sense when you read these Gospels, 
suggest very strongly that uh, the Gospel of Mark was written first, and that Matthew and Luke, uh, the authors of those Gospels, made use of Mark uh, in the writing of their Gospels. And that accounts for a lot of the agreements. It accounts for why they have a common storyline, the common plot. Matthew and Luke take that plot line basically from Mark. However, you will also notice that Matthew and Luke have material, uh, shared material that is not to be found in Mark. So they couldn't have taken it from Mark. And this material also has this kind of high degree of verbatim agreement, uh, sometimes as much as 90% of the words in an extended passage uh, are verbatim uh, the same. So if that, if that is true, then Matthew and Luke, is, it is inferred by most scholars now that Matthew and Luke must have had a second source, a written source, from which they drew this other material that they couldn't have gotten from Mark. And that is the basis of the Q hypothesis. Um, I say hypothesis because that's how we speak of it, but in the humanities, of course, the hypothesis is much more than a scientific hypothesis to be tested. It is really the way that most scholars account for the peculiar literary relationships uh, that exist between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, of course, there could be, I guess, some other ways. I mean, the traditional church has said that there are four different folks, four different guys, you know, four different evangelists who wrote from each perspective, but that isn't how the scholars look at it today. No, it isn't. Um, the problem is um, that the Gospels are all written in Greek, and when we read them, we read them in Greek. Uh, and when we notice their agreements and their verbatim agreement, it's all in Greek. But Jesus did not speak Greek, or at least it wasn't his main language. It wasn't his first language. He spoke Aramaic, and he taught and created this tradition, if you will, in Aramaic. So if you imagine, then, Jesus uh, teaching, speaking in a largely illiterate environment like uh, uh, first-century Galilee in Aramaic, and then people remembering what he said and, and repeating it dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, lots of different people repeating what Jesus said in Aramaic. And then someday well, a person comes along who is bilingual, and they begin to speak these things, say these things in Greek. And now they pass around in Greek, and maybe dozens of people speak them in Greek. And so run the tape forward now 50 years or so of dozens and dozens of people repeating Jesus things that Jesus said in Aramaic and in Greek. And now two people come along independently of one another and write down the story of Jesus. What are the chances that they write the same exact story of Jesus yeah. with the same words, sometimes agreeing verbatim like 90% of the time? It's very, very unlikely, very unlikely that, that sort of four common witnesses would have done that. It's just uh, um, the odds of that are astronomical. And the idea here then, of course, with Q is that it's, uh, the Greek is similar, so it had to be a written source. That's correct, yeah. yeah. When you take a very famous passage like um, the speech on cares, uh, consider the lilies, uh, how they neither toil nor spin, yet God clothes them, that very famous passage. If you compare that passage in Matthew and Luke, um, you have to read for about a paragraph before you come to any variation at all in the Greek wording of those two passages. That's, that's, that necessitates some kind of written source that Matthew and Luke shared. And that's our cue source. But, and the reason that's kind of interesting is that's where Thomas comes in, because the idea that, uh, that there might have been a written source of sayings didn't really kind of catch on until people discovered this other source of sayings, which is the Gospel of Thomas. Now, it has really nothing to do with cue, 
in a sense, but it's its own separate thing that kind of gave scholars uh, the idea that, hey, there, there were written sources out there, like uh, written sources of sayings. Right. When Q was first discovered, um, some people objected to the idea, objected to, to the hypothesis, because it would seem to imply an early gospel that was primarily sayings, uh, sayings and parables, really. And, um, well, that just would be an unusual gospel. It wouldn't have a passion narrative. It wouldn't have an account of Jesus' death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was kind of a problem for people, uh, many people, uh, until uh, the Gospel of Thomas was discovered. Um, the full, our first full copy of the Gospel of Thomas wasn't discovered until 1945, but scraps of Thomas were discovered around the turn of the last century. Um, and in Greek, uh, little fragments of the Gospel of Thomas, we couldn't tell that it was Thomas at the time, but they were little collections of sayings of Jesus. And that really uh, turned the tide on the Q hypothesis. Those uh, little collections of sayings that uh, Grenfell and Hunt, uh, two famous British explorers, found at Oxyrhynchus in Egypt uh, in the late 19th century, those little scraps convinced uh, many skeptics that, yes, it was possible to have a gospel that comprised simply the sayings of Jesus, because, well, here was an example of it. When the Gospel of Thomas was discovered, the full copy of the Gospel of Thomas that we have from Nag Hammadi uh, was discovered in 1945, then we could see even more clearly that here was a gospel start to finish. So it was simply a list of sayings of Jesus. And um, the, the important thing about the list form, I guess, is that it it is uh, not a neutral form. It's not uh, something that is has no purpose or meaning. It is a form that's drawn from the wisdom tradition, uh, not just the Jewish wisdom tradition, but sort of a pan-Hellenistic uh, Greek and Roman and Egyptian and ancient Near Eastern wisdom tradition that revered uh, wise teachers and collected their sayings. This is how the authors of Q and the Gospel of Thomas seem to have regarded Jesus. They thought of him as a, a prophet of wisdom. And what happened is that when you have the Gospel of Mark, that took a whole different angle, because with Mark, Jesus is, is a martyr, and the whole death and resurrection, it's a very different tradition from Q. And, and then Matthew and Luke kind of put those two together and made Jesus turn into kind of a, a different figure than he would have been in Q alone. Yes, well, that, that's true. And um, now there are elements of Q where... Sometimes a saying of Jesus is meant to reflect upon his, his uh, martyrdom, his fate, if you will, the danger he was getting into. And so from the time that Jesus was killed, we can well imagine that there were followers of Jesus that reflected on that fact. And, and for many people, that was very, very significant. It became a lot more significant, though. The, the story of Jesus' suffering and death became a lot more significant for Christians uh, when, um, uh, just about the time Mark was, was written. And the event that most scholars point to then is the so-called Jewish War, the Judean Revolt. It was a time when the Jewish people re rebelled against Roman rule. The rebellion lasted about four years, and at the end of it, the Romans prevailed, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, leveled its walls, and sold its inhabitants into slavery. Uh, during this war, uh, much of the uh, 
uh, the, the of Judea and Galilee and even parts of Samaria were destroyed. Uh, and the suffering of people in this time, uh, the suffering of Jews in this time was, was extraordinary. One of the things that uh, students of Christianity often fail to realize is that all of the books of the New Testament, save for the authentic letters of Paul, were written at the end of or in the immediate aftermath of the Judean War, the Judean Rebellion. And so when you see the text of the New Testament reflecting deeply on the significance of suffering and death and hoping for vindication in the form of resurrection, or even when you hear them speaking about faith and faithfulness, these are all themes that are extremely relevant in a time of war and in the aftermath of war as people are trying to get their lives back together. That experience shapes the New Testament very, very powerfully. When you look at um, Q, you're probably looking at a, at a work that came into being well before the war. It may have been added, uh, edited, things may have been added to it. Um, most certainly things were added to it over time uh, in the run-up to the war that would reflect that time more. But it's a text that is not really focused in the same way as, say, the Gospel of Mark is on Jesus' martyrdom. In the Gospel of Thomas, you have a text that was written in a place that was well removed from the Jewish war and removed even from the Roman Empire, so that those who compiled the Gospel of Thomas, again, really had a very different focus. They were not concerned about uh, how one remains faithful unto death. They weren't concerned about how to die bravely. Uh, they were worried about how to live wisely, how to uh, construct a life uh, modeled on the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Stephen Patterson, a professor at uh, Willamette University and the author of The Lost Way, How Two Forgotten Gospels Are Rewriting the Story of Christian Origins. Professor Patterson, last night I was reading your book, and, and I have to admit that I wasn't necessarily having a notebook and pen in hand. I was actually watching it or reading it and then watching episodes of The Walking Dead on Netflix. <laughs> and I was, as I was watching, I was thinking, well, there, there's almost a connection here. Uh, there's a sense in which, uh, as I'm reading your understanding of Q, that it's it's kind of survival literature. Uh, the Lord's Prayer isn't just kind of an esoteric spiritual thing. It's about real food and real debts and how to make these trades and how to survive. Yes. Um, you know, when you look at, uh, one of the things I try to do in the book is I try to use Q and the Gospel of Thomas to reconstruct something of the very earliest uh, verifiable layers, if you will, of the Jesus tradition. Mm -hmm. The things that, Jesus, that people remembered Jesus talking about uh, and teaching them in those first 20 years after the death of Jesus. And when you look at that material, it turns out to be remarkably practical, like the Lord's Prayer, as you just mentioned. It asks for debt relief. Well, one of the things that was a real issue uh, in uh, colonized Galilee uh, Galilee was a, was a, uh, was incorporated into the Roman Empire. Uh, the Jewish people were a colonized people, and people who lived at subsistence level uh, in that time and place had real concerns. One of them was uh, debt. Could they pay the tribute and not fall into arrears and uh, wind up in uh, debt slavery? Would they have to sell one of their children to pay off their debts? Would they have to 
themselves work as a slave or work as an indentured servant. So uh, slavery, uh, indebtedness was a big, big issue for them. So the Lord's Prayer begins with a request, forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others. There are many practical, um, uh, what should we say, lines of advice in that early material that you can well imagine is uh, quite useful, albeit sometimes frightening for people living in that time and place. One of my favorites is a, is a, a little saying that is shared by Q and Thomas. It also appears, at least in shadow form, I think, in uh, one of Paul's letters. It's this, whenever you go into the, the countryside and wander about in the country, and people take you in, eat what is put before you, and care for the sick that you find there. Now, that's an interesting little piece of, of advice. Um, uh, mm-hmm. John Dominic Cross has, has described it as a kind of survival program. That is, what are the two things that a person living at a subsistence level um, thinks about virtually every morning when she or he wakes up? Is, will I, will I eat today? Will I have enough to eat today? And secondly, will I get sick today? Uh, because if I get sick, I won't be able to work. And if I can't work, then I won't be able to eat for a day. And if I don't eat for a day, I'll probably be sicker tomorrow, and pretty soon I'm circling the drain. So imagine um, a program focused around eating and healing, eating and caring for one another when you get sick. When you don't have something to eat, knock on the door. And if a person of the kingdom of God is there, they will feed you. Eat what is put before you. And what will you do? Well, you will care for the sick that you find there because that is their need. And these are the two basic needs of subsistence-level peasants. They are food and care when you get sick. Of course, that was what I was getting at when I was talking about the Walking Dead thing, uh, of their wandering around this kind of a post-apocalyptic zombie apocalypse thing and uh-huh. caring for each other. That was just that connection that I had of the, of the, of the realism regarding um, uh, this, this early Jesus movement, that it, was, well, it, it, it went around people on the margins. I think I'm going to have to start watching The Walking Dead. I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, you'll love it. Yeah, you just can't beat the entertainment value of zombies. Um, but but I, I, I want to step in and move to the also the Gospel of Thomas. Um, mm-hmm. And I know there's debate among scholars whether that, you know, is early or some of it's uh, uh, much later. But it, um, what I got, it, it's a lot of sayings that appear really weird, but you really explained them well to me uh, when you talked it about in terms of Genesis. It's the idea of, of the immortal immortality and then the, the clothing or the body is the mortal part, and that's where Thomas lies, is that platonic thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Gospel of Thomas is, um, uh, like you, a wisdom gospel. It comprises, uh, not mostly, but in, t- in this case entirely, sayings of Jesus. But it, it brings to the sayings of Jesus a kind of interpretive strategy. And the strategy is rooted in uh, a very popular philosophical movement of the time, about the period of Christian origins. Uh, we refer to it as uh, Middle Platonism today, but as a kind of a form of Platonism uh, that was uh, very much in ascendancy in the period of Christian origins. And, and the concerns of Middle Platonism were really about, uh, they were about, ethics uh, and how to live. Uh, They were about self-understanding and how to understand yourself in the world. 
And so um, many sayings in the Gospel of Thomas are a kind of middle Platonic take on uh, the Jesus tradition. So, for example, um, in the Jesus tradition, there was a saying, a very early saying, that went something like this. Um, Do not look uh, for the kingdom of God to come with signs to be observed. Don't listen to people when they say, look, there it is or there. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or within you. Well, that that, um, saying occurs in the Gospel of Thomas. But it is then augmented with a little uh, middle Platonic insight that continues like this. Um, When you come to know yourselves, then you will realize that you are children of the living Father. So for Thomas, to discover the kingdom within yourself, within, is to discover your true self. And for Middle Platonists, that true self was a kind of peace of God, a spark of light, if you will. They often spoke of it. Uh, the Middle Platonists would speak of this part of God residing within you as the image of God. Well, that has clear resonance with uh, the Jewish traditions about creation in Genesis. And so uh, Jews that were interested in Middle Platonism, and then later Christians who were interested in it, focused quite a lot on Genesis and the stories of how the first human beings were created. And um, the the stories uh, about how God created human beings in the image of God come to play, I think, a pretty significant role in the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, one little thing, for example, that strikes people as very, very odd in the Gospel of Thomas, but in Middle Platonism, Platonism it's not all that odd. Genesis 1.27 says that God created the human one in God's own image, and it says, male and female, he created him. Some, some traditions say him, some traditions say them. Well, for people who heard him there, male and female, he created him. They thought of the first created human being as neither male nor female, but both male and female, like God, mm-hmm. a kind of androgyne, a primordial androgyne. Mm-hmm. And so they thought, now Philo, one of these Jewish philosophers, was deeply into Middle Platonism, and thought, what could that possibly mean? Well, he must, be, he must be talking about the inner spark of light, the image of God dwelling within. That original image of God was not tainted by all the, the things that come with male and female interplay, the gendered aspect of human existence. All of that is overcome in the original image, God, image of God that dwells within. And so... The Gospel of Thomas in Saint 22, for example, says, "If you, when you discover uh, the image of God, when you make the two into one, so that the male is no longer male and the female is no longer female, then you will discover the kingdom." The idea there is that to become truly wise and truly, what should we say, uh, healthy in your understanding of the world, you have to turn back the clock. Uh, turn, black, turn back to the time before human beings were created as gendered 
human beings, before God took the rib from Adam's side and made Eve, before they discovered one another's bodies and sex and all of that goes with that, before all of that, uh, when the two were one and you were male and female both, that's what you have to get back to. Stephen Patterson, my guest on Religion for Life, author of The Lost Way, How Two Forgotten Gospels Are Rewriting the Story of Christian Origins, The Gospel of Q and The Gospel of Thomas. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, just we just have a couple of minutes left, but I'm wondering of contemporary significance of this. You know, Thomas, I like Thomas. I, I like the idea of, of the search and all of that and the kingdom of God within you, but it gets a little, a little odd. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm trying to wonder what, is kind of the part of this project here of finding these lost gospels helping us today to find new sources for Christians in the 21st century? How how do you think these gospels might go about that project? Well, when you think of, um, let us say, classical Christianity today, I think most people think of it as really focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh-huh. the idea that Jesus died for our sins and that uh, he rose to conquer death and so now offers eternal life to anyone who believes in him. This cluster of basic Christian ideas, I think for many people it's becoming harder and harder to relate to those things. Yeah. Um, and um, I guess my question as a scholar and as um, someone who really takes tries to take this tradition seriously. I have to say, it disappoints me when people uh, think that that really is all that Christianity has or ever had to offer. And I think of Q and Thomas as a, as a window into another kind of Christianity, a very early kind of Christianity, albeit a, a sort of Christianity that was lost, that I would call wisdom Christianity. And... Um, it doesn't focus on Jesus' death and resurrection. It focuses rather on his life and teachings. Uh, it doesn't uh, ask, what would you die for? It asks more, what would you live for? How would you live? Mm-hmm. Not how, will you, how would you die? And um, it doesn't talk so much about um, self-sacrifice, but uh, self-examination. Um, now, the ideas you have in Q and the Gospel of Thomas are expressed exploratory ideas that goes with the the nature of wisdom, Uh, they often become very speculative, and I think people read these texts and say, hmm, that's interesting, but mm, a little too out there for me. I don't know. Other times, you might read these things and and discover real insights, things you never thought of before. So there's 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 a saying in the Gospel of Thomas that goes something like this. Jesus said, If you bring forth what is within you, that which you have will save you. Mm -hmm. If you do not have it within you, that which you do not have within you will kill you. That's kind of an, an, that's an odd idea, but an interesting idea to think about. How does your inner life relate to your outer life? How does your uh, self-understanding relate to how you live in the world? I think those are very important questions for anybody to ask. And they're questions that followers of Jesus were asking very early on in the, in the long history of Christianity. I think there's much to be discovered in these texts that, that contemporary people might find interesting and uh, renewing as they you know, consider what Christianity has to offer. Yeah, it's more of 
of discovering for yourself and giving uh, oneself some agency rather than just relying on an external savior to do it for you. Yes, in, in both the in both Q and the Gospel of Thomas, um, everybody becomes a child of God. Everybody who considers the tradition, who becomes wise, who thinks about these things, can become the son of God, the daughter of God, a child of God. It is not just Jesus who is the son of God. They speak of themselves and each other as the sons and daughters of God. An excellent book is called The Lost Way, How Two Forgotten Gospels Are Rewriting the Story of Christian Origins. Uh, Stephen Patterson is the author and has been my guest uh, today on Religion for Life. Uh, thank you, Professor Patterson, for this book and, and for being with me today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life. Find links to podcasts and more at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is produced by WEHC in Emory, Virginia, and WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee. Be well. 